news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. Today's guest was born in Australia but grew up in Canada. She has lived and worked in the Czech Republic, Taiwan, India and Japan. She studied writing at the Humber School for Writers, as well as George Brown College. She lives in Ontario, Canada, with her husband, son, and daughter. Her debut novel is titled What You Never Knew, Don't You Dare, is her second novel. Both are thrillers published by Crooked Lane Books. So, Jessica, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful having you on. And before we dive in to today's episode where we look at our query letters, I wanted to ask what it was like being a debut author who has all of your dreams come true only to have your debut published during COVID. Can we talk a bit about the luck that surrounds publishing and what terrible luck that was for you and how you were able to pivot? Yeah, well, I mean, because it was my debut, I think... I was just so excited to have a novel coming out in the world. And actually, it, it went on submission three days after the world shut down. So I didn't even think, and I, I emailed my agent, Carolyn Ford, and said, what what does this mean that the world has shut down and it's only just gone on submission? And she just said, I have no idea. <laughs> so I just didn't even know if if it would get picked up. And when it did, I was so excited about that. And so grateful that I tried not to focus on the fact that it wouldn't be a more traditional launch. And it was really difficult navigating the online things, the, you know, the virtual book tour. I had no idea what that meant or what it looked like. And then doing an online book launch through a bookstore in Connecticut. It was strange, but it was all I all I'd known because it was my debut. So I just was sort of going with the flow of that. And but then having another novel come out, not in COVID, I see what I missed. So I do prefer in-person things and having a having an in-person book launch was great. But at the time, I just was sort of grateful. And I had a lot of support from other authors in Toronto, Canadian authors who just helped me navigate the online stuff that I, I just really had no idea. I didn't even know what a bookstagrammer was when my novel was coming out. And so, yeah. 
Yeah, forewarned is forearmed. But that was really quick then. So you went out on submission as the world shut down. And then the book still came out during COVID. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know COVID was a long time, but still. like, So it must have been snapped up really, really quickly. And their turnaround in terms of publishing, it must have been pretty fast mm-hmm. by publishing standard. Yeah, it was. So when it went on submission in March. And then June, I had a deal. And then it came out the following April. So it did, it did feel pretty, pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. So for our listeners, that's really pretty fast. Most times the book that you, you know, have coming out today is a book that you kind of sold two years ago or about 18 months ago. So, so that's pretty awesome to show that there are publishers that can turn these things around quite quickly. Okay. Well, the book that we're going to be talking to Jessica about today is Don't You Dare. It's a really racy, compelling propulsive thriller which we're going to discuss in a little bit more detail later for now we're going to do our usual and dive right in with our first query letter carly will you kick us off with that please dear bianca cc and carly i have been listening to the shit no one tells you about writing podcast for about a year now and so appreciate the useful advice you provide to all us listeners weekly due to carly's fondness for contemporary romance i wanted to submit my query to her The summer we started living, my dual POV, 75,000 word contemporary romance can be described as dirty dancing meets the sound of music. It will appeal to those who enjoyed the found family aspect of Alison Larkin's The People We Keep, the second chance romance of Mahari McFarlane's Don't You Forget About Me, and the themes related to self-discovery in Kate Claiborne's Georgie all along. Penny has spent the last 20 years hiding from her past, content to run the Children's Activities Division at Maple Fox, a family camp in rural Vermont. She's created her own family with co-workers, and though her life is boring, it's stable and predictable, all the things her childhood wasn't. That is, until Penny learns the camp is to be sold at the end of the summer, leaving Penny with no job and nowhere to live. As Penny considers her future, she must also contend with her troubling past when a familiar face shows up at her camp. George arrives at Maple Fox, overwhelmed by the responsibility of caring for his four children alone for two weeks. He can't wait to get through this vacation so he can return them back to their mother, per their custody agreement. But when he realizes he knows the camp's children activity director from high school, old feelings begin to resurface despite the reason they are no longer in each other's lives. And her almost instantaneous bond with the kids forces him to take a hard look at his own lack of a relationship with them. Penny and George find themselves thrown together in various situations, whether it be lunch at the dining hall, singing over s'mores, participating in a relay race, or hunkering down during a power outage. As they separately think about life after camp, they jointly realize that perhaps untangling what went wrong between them two decades ago will help them face their own personal shortcomings and give them both the courage to move forward. I am a behavior analyst, a wife, a mom to three little redheads, and the owner of an elderly beagle. In my spare time, you can find me reading, writing, or daydreaming about sipping spicy margaritas on the rocks, no salt, at the beach. Thank you for reading my query letter, and please let me know if I may send you my full manuscript. Kristen Murakowski. Thank you, Carly. I have no idea what a behavior analyst is, but I feel like it's a fancy word for what writers do, so I'm fully on board for that occupation. Right, can you give us a word count there and your take on that? All right, this one comes in at 447 words. All right, so, you know, I'm saying that and like it doesn't, it didn't really seem that long to me. I guess when I was reading, like it kind of felt long, but there is a lot of material to come through. And obviously in a contemporary romance, we have to learn about both people's plot trajectories. So I suppose that all makes sense. So starting with the title... I like the title. I think I think this is good. And now in terms of the comps, so Dirty Dancing meets The Sound of Music. So these are both historical. So I don't know, that felt a bit off to me. And then obviously the comps, like the book comps weren't, but the but the film, the kind of vibe comps were. So I was kind of thinking that a more obvious comp would be Meet Me at the Lake by Carly Fortune, because that to me just evokes all those vibes. And if you know that book and it's a New York Times bestseller. So I feel like that would potentially be a comp that kind of, takes that dirty dancing meets the sound of music vibe and brings it into contemporary spirit. So that would be something that I would suggest. You know, I usually always say the whole like her life is boring and stable and predictable is is tough. But I do like here that you said all the things her childhood wasn't. Because that, again, is that kind of dramatic tone shift that kind of explains, you know, why she wants her life to be that way. So I I can I can respect and understand that. And now in terms of the male lead, I have a lot of complicated feelings here because I feel like a father, an ambivalent father, 
is potentially unlikable. And I want to unpack that in my own being because I feel like, am I making assumptions about what I think a male lead should be? Why do I think that? But I, I, I think about readers, you know, when I think about expectations. So I'm not sure how readers are going to feel about an ambivalent father character. But his arc seems interesting in the sense that, you know, through this, he potentially does become closer to his kids. And we don't obviously know all the reasons for the breakup of his marriage. So as I said, I'm questioning my own, my own assumptions about this. But I'm just flagging that as something that is kind of a, a potential stumbling block for readers. Now, in terms of the stakes here, right? So really, it's about these two figuring out how to move forward, move forward in their lives, which is the stake of all of our lives, like putting one foot in front of the other every day, right? But in terms of a novel, I'm not really sure in terms of like, what is keeping them apart? And because we don't know what the blow up was that happened 20 years ago, we don't really have any context for why the stakes feel highest to these characters, even though they don't feel high to us as the reader. So that's kind of what I'm grappling with here. I think we really need to know what in particular is kind of is going to keep these two apart, I think, to really make this sing at its highest level. So those are my notes. And I liked the author bio. And I don't know what a behavior analyst is either. I'm like, is it a psychologist? But it sounds cool. And I hope you get your coins for it because it sounds impressive. So uh, well done. Thank you, Carly. Okay, can you give us an indication of what happened in the opening pages? Okay, so we start in our point of view of Penny with a kind of a timestamp that says five days before the first day of camp. So that is our timestamp. And we start with our character Penny in the kind of meeting with everybody that works at the camp. And there's some news coming from the people who own the camp, like we know in the query letter, which is the couple is selling. Earl and Harmony are selling the resort. But they said it's at the end of the summer and they're kind of laying out like nobody wanted it. We're selling it to developer, but like, let's have a great year, everybody. So obviously the the vibe in the room isn't great. And then she is handed the piece of paper for kind of her, her campers in terms of the kids that are kind of staying with her. And she recognizes George's name. So we kind of learn a little bit about George and her feelings about that. And, and that's kind of where it ends. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on that? I really liked the demonstration of our character's anxiety. I think this is really hard to do well when we know a character is like feeling intense or anxious in the moment, that whole telling versus showing. So I just kind of wanted to give you guys some examples of why I thought this was really well done. So right after Earl and I have some news, it goes... Penny had spent most of the meeting so far fidgeting with her hands, folding and unfolding the corners of the paper she was holding. And then it goes on a little bit. It says, and focused on the precise creases she was making. She tuned out most of the words, listening only for some change in tone to indicate that Harmony was about to say something different. I thought that was really, really well done because I think there's so many instances where people kind of, again, writers just want to say it, you know, in terms of that, that stress or anxiety, but like showing it through this, like crumpling up this piece of paper. I really, I, I really enjoyed that. In terms of like the tone in the room, again, after the, this was announced that it was going to be sold, I felt like the energy in the room was a little bit flat. You know, or they say like, so we're just going to have to make this the best summer Maple Fox has ever seen. Okay. And then they all kind of just like scatter and get to work. I'm like, <laughs> wouldn't there just be like some dialogue between like some characters or, you know, side conversations going people like upset about losing their jobs at the end of the year. I, I don't know. Like, I guess this isn't an omniscient narrator situation, so we can't get into everybody's heads, but I felt like the energy felt flat for the type of news that was delivered. Or maybe that just suggests that everybody didn't care about their jobs that much. And again, maybe that's just an assumption that I'm making about these characters. That stood out to me in terms of in terms of tone. And then going to back to going back to reactions. So when Penny figures out that George and his kids are coming, she obviously recognizes his name and, and and she sees that it's like the man's name and four kids, but she's like, oh, there's no wife. And she's trying to figure it all out. I found her reaction also quite placid. And this worries me because if it's not expressed as intense on the page, then how is the reader supposed to interpret this as an intense situation? Because if she's not having a big reaction to him showing up, then why should we as the reader have a big reaction? I, I just didn't feel like we were planting the seeds in terms of like the intensity of the situation. And that's why a great comp or a book that might be great for you to read is Meet Me at the Lake, Carly Fortune's book, because 
it does start with some really high energy, intense situation, you know, at this at this resort in a way that I think will get at, if you read that, you'll kind of understand what I'm trying to get at with some intensity points that we can really just, you know, electrify this because I just, I worried that it was a bit flat because I'm talking about, the, you know, meet me at the lake as a comp because you know who else is going to use it a comp is other agents and editors and readers, you know, and so like the, she set the bar for what a resort rom-com, you know, should be or contemporary romance should be. So I do think that's kind of where the bar is so that, that's one uh, that I suggest you check out. Thank you Carly. Yeah and that's where interiority and emotionality are so incredibly important. They need to act as red flags to the readers to know what they should care about and why because that's what the character is caring about and paying attention to. All right we're now going back to Jessica Hamilton who is our visiting author today, the author of What You Never Knew and Don't You Dare both of which are thrillers. Jessica will you please read us your query letter? Dear Cece, Carly, and Bianca, binging your podcast has inspired me to consider jumping from the indie publishing train onto the traditional bandwagon. If you love unexpected diabolical twists as much as I do, then The Lonesome Dark might be worth a look. At 82,000 words, the standalone thriller with serious potential is my fourth novel. It's Halloween, one year since Pearl White endured hell when her husband was brutally murdered. Now the killer's back. The man in the mangled pleather mask wants her dead, but she's a fighter. A survivor who soon realizes she can't survive without her son. The bastard she thought was dead has stolen him, taken her only child, and she knows why. She also knows the statistics. If a child isn't found within 48 hours, it's likely they never will be. With Bodhi's life on the line and her freedom at stake, Pearl is desperate to prove her innocence and put an end to her reputation as widow white trash. Jail is no place for the innocent or the weak, and Pearl is neither. She must risk everything. Reveal the truth about the man in the pleather mask, a secret so vile it may end in her own demise, and allow Pleatherface to claim another victim. The Lonesome Dark is crafted specifically for readers who savor the angst of not knowing who to love and who to despise. My audience, along with myself, crave jaw-dropping twists and unpredictable characters that make perfect sense. Imagine my shock as the author of The Lonesome Dark when I realized the character I thought was the killer wasn't. I love when that happens. Told in three parts from the perspectives of the accused, the Lonesome Dark examines themes of loneliness throughout and how it manipulates our desire to be loved. A must-read for fans of Jar of Hearts and Gone Baby Gone. I'm an award-winning screenwriter, filmmaker, author, and UCLA alumni. My work has appeared in numerous magazines, newspapers, and sporting journals. Calaveras, my debut thriller, became an Amazon bestseller and encouraged me to write a prequel. Blue Mountain also became an Amazon bestseller. The success of my previous work and passion to create leads me to believe I've acquired the skills necessary to move into the traditional publishing market. I'd love a partner in crime and someone to collaborate with on a string of successful thrillers. Hope you enjoy reading The Lonesome Dark as much as I enjoyed writing it. Awesome, Jessica. Thank you. Okay, we're now going to throw it to Cece. Cece, what did you think of that query letter? This one came in at 418 words. I wanted to tell the author that it's so amazing that you've had this career in self-publishing, that you have this career in self-publishing. I know it's so much work, a lot of effort and time and skills go into making self-publishing work, and I just have a lot of admiration for authors who do it. I have a lot of questions about your plot, and this is where I wish I could talk to you. So let's start with the line that reads that she realizes she can't survive without her son. How is this a realization? Like, surely she knew this, right? Like, I that confused me. And then there's a line that says her freedom's at stake. And I'm like, why is her freedom at stake? Because I didn't know that she was accused of anything. And there's another line that says prove her innocence. And I'm like, prove her innocence about what? At the end of the plot paragraph, the same thing, like told in three parts from the perspectives of the accused. Who who are these people? What were they accused of? Was it was it Bodhi's kidnapping? Is like is she a suspect? I had a lot of questions. And there were lines that felt contradictory. So for example, Jail is no place for the innocent or the weak, and Pearl is neither. That suggests that she does belong in jail, right? And is that the intention? You mentioned the secret, and I'm super curious to know what the secret is, but I feel like my curiosity would be specific to your story if I had more plot information in a way that didn't make me feel so confused. Everybody knows I recently quit caffeine, so it might be a me problem, but I did think that feel that the choppy sentences threw me off. So I guess I would just revise these sentences, revise the plot points. And if this is told from three perspectives, then we need three POV arcs, right? Like this character, this arc, 
this character, this arc, and once more. But I'm curious to hear what, what everyone else thought. Thank you, Cece. Okay, Carly? I had a lot of the same notes. I found, like, I think the choppy style, like, I'm just trying to put myself in this author's shoes. I kind of feel like this is the type of choppy writing that works really well for, like, copy, like, you know, Amazon copy in terms of the the description of the book. It's very common for thrillers to just be, like, planting seeds, you know? So this really felt like Amazon copy to me, and that purpose is Amazon copy. For the purpose of a query letter, we have a million and one questions in terms of actually trying to figure out what this book is about and if we will be interested in it, right? That's our job here. I also want to come back to the idea of like this being a thriller. Like to me, this almost seems like a horror. Like, I don't know if anybody else is getting that, but is it a horror? Like how much is on the page in terms of what we're witnessing? And I don't know. I So I'm, I'm like, is this a thriller? Is like a slasher thriller? Like, I, again, I'm like, I don't know how much is on the page because I don't actually know as much about the book as I, as I want to know. The other thing, you know, just pointing out kind of questions, is this put an end to a reputation as the widow white trash? I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> I'm like, I've, I really want to dig into that. I think that is very interesting. So there's a lot of just these like super interesting notes kind of thrown in here. But again, it feels kind of like a bullet point jacket copy situation as opposed to what is actually happening in this book that can serve as a query letter to the best of its ability. I would move this one section to the top, you know, the told in three parts from the perspective of the accused, Lonesome Dark examines, you know, because that has the comps and I always like that at the top. So I'd be moving that way up. And I think and, and accused of what, right? So tell us what they're accused of. And then that can act as the framing, I think, for a bit more of, of what's to come. So I think there's there's a lot of options here in terms of how you want to rework this. But yeah, there's there's something there's something interesting here and we just want to know what it is. Thank you, Carly. Jessica, before we look at the actual pages, was there anything you wanted to add in terms of the query letter? No, I I had the exact same feeling about it, just the confusion. I felt like there were so many things left hanging, which Carly and Cece touched on really well. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, for the author, I feel your pain. I struggle at writing jacket copy and I suck at query letters. So, you know, it's difficult. And then you have to navigate between the two as well. It's like trying to move from writing flash fiction to a novel. It's it's really difficult. Okay, Jessica, can you give us an indication of what happened in those opening pages? Yes, I can. Okay, so it starts with the protagonist stumbling up some stairs that I I have to come to come to the assumption is her home. So she's stumbling upstairs. She's drunk. It's the end of the night. She falls into bed and she hears some sounds that could be footsteps, but she's, she's not really sure. She thinks it could be being tired, being, being drunk. The room is spinning and she references the fact that she's in a hundred year old Victorian home. So It could just be creaking from that and that it is Halloween. And then she does fall asleep. And then we're sort of taken back to the party that happened earlier where she got drunk on Sangria, which was a fundraiser for a women's shelter. And she it was a great party to start with, great decorations, a band playing. And then she had an embarrassing moment in which she said something in reference to her husband passing and using the life insurance to throw the party. She's sort of mortified. The party winds down, but a guest stays who I'm thinking will be the love interest. And they have sex in a coffin that is for decoration. And we end at the end of that scene where she's feeling a lot of shame around it, around having had sex with with JD. Great, Jessica. Thank you. I'm always intrigued when I hear of this kind of opening where so early on, so within those five pages, we start at a place in the future and then we go back to the past. I'm always intrigued as to whether that worked. And I'm always intrigued as to why did the author not just begin at the party with the character drunk and having sex and then stumbling up the stairs. So what was your take on that? And did you think it worked? I didn't think it worked. I did. That was my first point was that I didn't feel like anything, anything really substantial came out in the, in the beginning. It felt a little bit like a preamble. And I, I said that I would consider starting at the party or even as the, at the, the party preparations, because I just, I don't think any crucial information came out in, in that beginning of her falling asleep and being really drunk. Okay, and then in terms of the rest of it, is is there anything you can add in terms of the writing or advice you can give in terms of polishing? Mm -hmm. 
I felt there were a couple of points that I felt that she, if she that she should really give a little bit more context to, to about her character. So there is a reference further on about life insurance, but we we aren't actually told that it is because of her husband's death. I just assumed it because she referred to herself in the query letter as a widow white trash. So I I felt like she needed to give us a bit more information about her her main character and why she had the money to throw this party and also why she was throwing a party for a women's shelter in particular. And I thought that would give us a lot more of a connection to the character as well, just knowing why a women's shelter, why she had this money, what happened to her husband. And I also, I I mean, she had great details about the party, the description of the party really created a great, created a very good setting and lots of visuals. And she did work in some things about the character that I thought were, were were easily worked in and nice about feeling that she was less than other people and not as refined. And again, that sort of white trash element. But I feel like she could have expanded on that a little bit more. And I did have some issue with them having sex in a coffin. I just, I couldn't get my head around the logistics of that, the physical logistics I kept trying to picture how two people would fit in in a coffin. So again, I think it's a really cool idea, considering it was a Halloween party and everything. But and I don't know if it's foreshadowing for something, which would be cool as well. But just thought she needed to explain it a little bit better. Yeah, and she had some really she had some good description, especially like creepy, nice creepy description that I think would fit well with a thriller or or a horror novel. And so, and I liked the, I liked the idea of the, the novel starting at Halloween. Yeah. Thank you, Jessica. Yeah, plausibility is huge. I remember we sat at one of my book clubs, my real life book club, and we were discussing the plausibility of a very creative sex scene that took place on a grand piano. And we actually had out measuring tapes and things as we were trying to work out the height of the grand piano compared to the height of this man, where this woman was sitting and what could have gone where and when. So, you know, you never want to be taken out of the story while you're trying to figure this kind of stuff out. In terms of her not saying that it was the husband who had died and how he died, if she was wanting to do these things as curiosity seats to keep you turning pages, how would you suggest she does that while making the reader aware that it is something that will follow later as a payoff and that'll keep you intrigued but not frustrate you is there a way of doing that well all she had to say was that her husband had passed away I mean she didn't even say that so she and she could have said you know in honor of my husband's passing one year ago I decided to throw a party a fundraiser for the local women's shelter in honor of him and his passing. I mean, it, he, they, she didn't have to give details about how he passed. But again, she could have said something like, and, you know, the horrific circumstances under which my husband passed. I don't want to focus on that. A year later, I'm going to do some good. And you know what I mean? Like, just reference it, reference it, maybe not wanting to think about it because it was so terrible. And then the reader obviously would think, oh, well, why? What actually happened to him? Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. So for our listeners, when you're planting curiosity seeds, don't make them so subtle that the reader's kind of confused. Have them stop and go, ooh, this is interesting. I can't wait to find out more about this. So that's really important there. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. 
Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they've been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Right, we're going to be coming back to Jessica shortly to discuss more about her thriller, Don't You Dare. I have a ton of questions for her. In the meantime, we're going to go to Cece now for Cece's query. Will you read that for us, please? Dear Cece, thanks to you, Carly and Bianca, for giving me the tools and confidence to draft this query letter. I am seeking representation for my debut novel, Redacted, a 97,000-word historical fiction thriller set during the Cold War years of 1968 and 1990. This frame-format multi-POV novel is The Americans Meets Hidden Figures, with the pacing and intrigue of Our American Friend by Anna Petoniak and American Spy by Lauren Wilkerson. In 1990, Anna is a racially shape-shifting new member of the CIA clandestine service with a secret. Raised by her aunt, Anna's birth mother was Marianne, a brilliant and ambitious radio astronomer at NASA in Washington, D.C. But in 1968, she had three strikes against her, young, black, and female. Mikhail, a handsome KGB agent who's spying on NASA, sees Marianne and is immediately captivated. He decides it would be enjoyable to romance government secrets out of her, though it proves to be a challenge due to racism and her suspicion of men, especially white men. Nevertheless, they fall in love and she becomes pregnant. The Soviets decide they want her talent and Mikhail must reveal himself to convince her to defect. She's enraged, but because of her unwavering love, begins to romanticize family life in Russia. Tragedy strikes when she suffers a miscarriage and Mikhail's cover is blown. He flees to the U.S. before Marianne discovers she's still pregnant. Betrayed and abandoned, Marianne gives birth to Anna. But then the FBI links her to Mikhail, and the KGB swoops in and takes her to the USSR. No one knows about the baby except her sister, who raises Anna as her own. Anna resolves to use her assignment in Russia to find Marianne. She'll find unexpected allies and enemies while working to evade both the CIA and KGB. I am a national security and foreign policy wonk who is using her midlife crisis for good, not evil. I've studied and worked in the former Soviet Union, including Donetsk, Ukraine. I'm a featured podcast guest 
and speaker on diversity in national security and serve on several boards. My fiction and nonfiction writing has appeared in publications such as Fjord's Review, Taproot Magazine, and Scary Mommy. I live in the Washington, D.C. suburbs with two nosy kids and an untrustworthy chameleon named Matahari. You can read more about me here. I've posted the first five pages below. Would you like to read the complete manuscript? Sincerely, Redacted. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was our word count there? The word count was 415 words. Okay, and what was your take on the rest of that? So I really like the premise, right? Like when I read the first paragraph, the hook paragraph, I was like, oh gosh, I like I would definitely read this. It feels like the kind of book that I would pick up if I walked into a bookstore. I'm very intrigued. I did feel like the query letter, the plot paragraph specifically, which is what, let's face it, it's what I always obsess about, needs work. For starters, the structure. Right now, the first sentence is about Anna, right? It's about the fact that she is a member of the CIA clandestine service. She has a secret. She was raised by her aunt and her mom is Marianne. And then we get a whole bunch of sentences on Marianne's arc. And at the very end, we get Anna's birth. And we get a line on Anna's arc, which is that she needs to go to Russia to find Marianne and she'll find unexpected allies and enemies working to evade these two government agencies. That is a very vague line in terms of like telling me about the protagonist's arc. You know, the author has told me that this is multi-POV, right? But I'm guessing that Marianne's and Anna's arcs are the most important ones, perhaps Mikhail as well. I don't think that it should be that Anna's arc should be baked into Marianne's or vice versa, depending on how you look at it. I don't think the format works. The going into time to finding out about one person and then linking it to the mom, hearing the mom's arc and coming back, it was too confusing for me. So I would change the structure completely. I would have Anna's arc and then Mary Ann's arc. And if Mikhail is a protagonist in, in his own right, I would have his arc too. There was spelling situation where Mary Ann's name was spelled differently throughout the query letter, usually with a Y, but then once with an I. That's a small thing that I'm really just letting you know because I read it. It's not a big deal. If this showed up in my inbox, I would not care. Typos happen. It's fine. But you know, why not? why not change it now that I've told you about it? I do think that when it comes to the climax, we need something very, very dramatic because you're promising me a thriller, right? So I need to be like, oh my gosh, it can't be something as vague as unexpected enemies and allies. That's that's too vague. And I want to say that this is an incredibly impressive author paragraph. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, Cece. Okay, what happened in those opening pages and what was your take on them? We have a prologue. It's 1979 in Ohio. And so Anna, who's 11 years old, is snooping in the attic. There's a party going on in her house, which doesn't want to be there. So she decides to snoop in the attic, which is her favorite activity. And she finds pictures and letters and is awed by them. And one of the pictures is of her mom with this other woman who she starts noticing looks a lot like her. And on the back, it says names and then sisters and she's like well my mom doesn't have a sister so that's really weird so then she's called for a bath she hides the letters and pictures because she wants to keep looking at them her mom asks her what she's doing and she seems kind of scared of her mom but then her little brother interrupts and she's like very thankful for the interruption and basically she gets grounded with no candy and no cartoons after school tomorrow Okay, so do you think the author started at the right place with our prologue? We, we always are backwards and forwards on how successful prologues are. What was your take on the pages? Okay, the prologue has got to go. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry to the author, but there's a few reasons. Reason number one is you're promising me a thriller, and you're promising me a thriller that's going to follow the lives of adult characters in two different timelines. And you're starting with the third timeline, with a child character. And don't get me wrong. Can you pull that off? You can. Anything is possible in storytelling. The rules are there to be broken, but they are only supposed to be broken when that's going to up the tension, elevate the stakes. And right now, the stakes are not being elevated. And I'll tell you why. You promised me a thriller. I was very excited, redacted person. I'm not saying your name because you asked us to redact your name for this thriller. But then the pages that I read, this really sweet prologue, read more like a family saga. It read more like upmarket fiction. I, like good, don't get me wrong, but no thriller vibes. And so I wanted thriller vibes. And of course I get why, like, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that you want to show us the origin story of her finding out her secret, right? Like the fact that she found the letters and the pictures. 
there's two problems with that. One, we do not need to start with the origin story. Origin stories are super important and there's a way to bake that into novels. Go look at Bianca's novel, The Witches of Moonshine Manor, so you can see that all the witches' origin stories. Go look at Girls and Their Horses to find out about the origin stories of multi-POV characters. There's lots of ways to do it, but starting with the origin story is seldom the way to get there, in my opinion. The second reason is because I didn't believe that an 11-year-old girl would be fascinated by yellowed photographs and, and letters. Like, I didn't believe that. It, from the second she finds um, what she calls a treasure, she calls it her best find yet. We don't get any interiority on what her previous best find was. And naturally, she would compare. And that comparison would make the character come to life for me. It would give her texture and specificity. It's too obvious, right? It's too like she finds a letter. She's immediately intrigued. She starts asking all the right questions and noticing all the similarities. I would much have preferred, if you are keen on keeping the prologue, which I don't think you should, but I would much have preferred her to be wrong about everything and make different assumptions and obsess about the wrong things and then find out because then that would lead to surprise and it would also show me how she thinks. The fact that she's getting everything right is really, really leaking the tension. So I think you should start with her as an adult. I do love the premise. I do love the fact that you worked so hard on the scene. And again, if I was, if I were critiquing a women's fiction or family saga or just general upmarket fiction, my notes would be filled with compliments because that was so great, but I didn't get thriller vibes. So I would work on that. Thank you, Cece. And for the author, it's not to say all your time spent there would be a waste. You could always come back to this down the line as it being a flashback scene, right? So you can rejig it around there. Okay, now we finally get to turn our attention back to Jessica Hamilton, author of Don't You Dare. Now, Jessica, if you've listened to our podcast at all, you will know that we generally say, don't start with the character waking up from a dream. You start that way. I thought it worked really well. And then I did some research on you on this book. And it turned out that the whole premise for this book came from a dream. So can you first tell us about that dream and the premise and then why you chose to begin this way? Because I think intentionality is so important. And if you're going to break the rules, have a damn good reason for doing it and do it really well. So what's your, your advice mm -hmm. there? Uh, so it was a dream that the seed of this novel was a dream. And the dream was about a couple who were carrying out an affair, but only through writing. So they were passing the dream. What happened in the dream was they met in the night at a bench in, in sort of a square and they passed a notebook to each other. And just in the dream, I knew that the, the notebook held details of their affair. So it was a strange, very strange dream, but I thought it was an interesting concept. So the original version of the novel was they, they did carry out an affair through writing because the main protagonist, Hannah, was married with kids. And then he, the man, uh, Thomas, who she, they were having this written affair together, was carrying things out other places. But it just, there wasn't the tension, there wasn't the excitement, it, it just didn't work. So then through different revisions, it, it morphed into what it, it became, which was a game. And the notebook was where they passed the dares back and forth and kept details of their dares. And that I felt like that worked a lot better than, you know, because really it's not that exciting to have an affair through writing, even though the dream was really cool. It, just, it didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's, that's really important. So, you know, we'll wake up from a dream and be like, Oh my God, that was so cool. That was so weird. But that may not sustain, you know, a whole story, but in terms of beginning with your character, having a dream, what was the reasoning there? Well, I, I felt like the dream, I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't love dream sequences. I like the hinting at dreams because I think that they are so indicative of what a, a person is going through at the time. And they can also, I believe dreams can be psychic. They can, you know, talk, give indication of what may come. They are also uh, good examples of what is going on within a person's subconscious and conscious. So I thought that just a little hint at a dream worked well to set up how, where Hannah's mind was, that she's very, she's quite focused on her children. That's her main role in this novel at that point in her life and that there but there was the hinting of something terrible to come with the dream you know the dream was a scary dream and I think you know I know myself as a parent that I have those dreams and I will wake up and think 
and I have little panics of, well, is that because something really bad is going to happen? Or, you know, is it just my concerns, my worries? So it just, it's, I find them so unsettling that I liked the idea of starting with her feeling that unsettled. And then there's a, a conflict already with her husband. And, you know, so it just, it worked well, but I do agree. Don't, don't go into great detail with dreams. I just don't, I think that that can get really boring. Yeah, so in this instance, it served two purposes, foreshadowing, right? It sets up the tension for what's going to come, and it reveals something about character. So two very intentional reasons to begin with that. Mm -hmm. Now, for our listeners, I'm just going to read some of the jacket copy. So when best friends Hannah and Scarlett meet Thomas in college, the chemistry is instantaneous. They grow closer while playing the daring game, where each dare is riskier than the last. As the trio's friendship begins to cross boundaries between the platonic and the illicit, jealousy and secrets quickly develop. As tensions between the three grow, so do the stakes in the daring game, resulting in tragedy with Scarlett's final dare to Thomas. When Thomas gets expelled from the school and leaves without a trace, it seems like the daring game has finally ended. Sixteen years later, Hannah is unhappy in marriage and in life. That is, of course, until she gets a mysterious letter about the daring game from none other than Thomas himself. With Scarlett out of the picture and a renewal of the dangerous game, the sparks begin to fly between them once more. Until the day Hannah and Thomas are called to the secret meeting place of the daring game, where they're welcomed by a single dare to tell the truth. Someone else has joined the game and knows about their affair, going so far as leaving a cryptic message in Hannah's house. Don't you dare. Hannah's list of suspects is long. Could it be her nosy neighbor Libby, who has a few secrets of her own? Or did her husband plan this as revenge for the torrid affair? Is Scarlet back and ready to play again? The truth may set Hannah free, but only if she dares to risk everything she knows and loves. So as you can tell there from the jacket copy, we have a dual timeline narrative, right? We have things that are happening, you date stamp them in 2018, and then we go back into the past into then chapters that are done in italics so we can tell that that is happening in the past did it always begin that way jessica that kind of structure or was it that you had to first write what had happened in the past so that you could figure out what was happening in the present day or were you figuring out what happened in the past as you were writing the present day chapters well i wrote one of one of the versions was there wasn't the dual timeline I had some flashbacks through Hannah's perspective of just trying to weave that backstory of their relationship and of how the game developed. And there actually wasn't a ton of it. And by the time I got sort of that story out, you know, we were into the novel and it focused on the present day. And um, and I actually, I did have a dual timeline, but it was after the, the sort of the, the main event and before so it went back and forth that way and it just again it it just didn't seem to work as well and so when I was going back to revising it I that's when I had the idea of well maybe I I do the dual timeline and give the full backstory and sort of have both the you know past tensions current tensions side by side and I just I also liked exploring their relationship a little bit further and where how it came about and and I mean they do have a pretty twisted relationship the three friends Scarlett Thomas and Hannah so that was for me fun as a writer to to delve into that a little bit and make it a bit darker yeah I love hearing about the evolution of a manuscript because you know for writers it can feel like two steps forward, three steps back, and it can be like banging your head against the brick wall. But it is so great when you have these aha moments and go, it's not really working. Why is it not working? How can I jig it? How can I fix it? And I think the current structure works incredibly, incredibly well because you withhold just enough information to make us curious about what happened in the past and then we'll get some answers about the past, but not so much that there's a tension leak when we come back to the present day. So for those of our listeners who are writing a kind of dual timeline narrative, remember you've always got to maintain that tension so that we just need the answer from the past and then we go back to the past. But that gives us even more questions about the present so that when we come back to the present, we're like, oh, this is interesting, so that we don't find one narrative more compelling than the other. Now, something we spoke about earlier in one of our query letters was likability, and we also discussed sort of plausibility. So these are two things I want to discuss when it comes to don't you dare. 
face value, Hannah is not a very sympathetic or likable character. And I hate saying this, especially when it comes to female characters, because I feel like we make woman characters jump through hoops with jazz hands to show how likable and sympathetic they are. And at face value, we find Hannah, she's drinking during the day. She's just sitting on the couch. She's not working. She's not doing anything. Her husband seems quite annoyed with her. She misses taking her kids to school because she was drinking. So we're like, okay, well, is she the best mom at the beginning as well? So when you begin with this kind of character, you need to give the reader other things so that the character is sympathetic and vulnerable. So there we go. Okay, we don't really like her, but we can understand why she is the way she is. Can you talk a bit about putting together a character like this that on the face value is not that likable, but when you dig a bit deeper, you find her deeply sympathetic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I felt with Hannah that, you know, she is a mess for sure, especially the, well, yeah, for the whole novel, she's a mess. But there are a lot of things going on in the background. She's depressed. She has had trauma through a miscarriage and which then affected her relationship. So her marriage is not not doing well and she doesn't feel like she has a lot of safety with her husband. She has lost her career, so she's lost a sense of her identity as well. I feel like I gave her enough reasons for being in the place that she was. And I do feel like, you know, in our society, people can be, they can be a mess and but still hold together just enough that they might be able to create the illusion that they're not. But I think we often don't know the struggles that especially mothers are going through because we don't, society, it doesn't really make it that safe to reveal that when you're really, truly suffering and, and you need support and help. So, I mean, there has been feedback that she's not likable and I, I wouldn't say she is a likable character. I think she makes some really stupid mistakes. But again, I, I actually do think people do that. I really do. So, and I especially think yeah. that when you're married unhappily, people can look for, you know, an easy escape through having an affair. And yeah. And so I, you know, that's sort of what, what I, what I gave her just, she looked for that easy escape. Yeah. And besides that, I really hated her husband. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like, Hannah, I can understand why you are drinking at this yeah. time and et cetera, et cetera, because I really dislike your yeah. husband. So I think for our listeners, if you're going to give somebody a so-called unlikable character, give them other things that they've got going on that makes us get even more on their side. And certainly seeing the way her husband interacted with her, I was like immediately on her side because I was like, this guy's, you know, he's got to go. So, so there's all these things you do. And I feel like when it comes to this idea you had, and in terms of plausibility and character building, so you go, okay, there's these two people that are giving each other dares. And then you go, these are adults who are still playing this game. And then you have to go, okay, in terms of plausibility, someone who's emotionally well-adjusted and who has a happy life is not going to be playing this kind of game that they were playing when they were teenagers. So in order to make the whole scenario plausible, you need to make the characters a certain way so that the reader immediately goes, oh yes, I can understand why Hannah's playing this game. So how much of that came into building her up as a character in terms of the plausibility that she would be the kind of person who would do this kind of thing as an adult? Mm -hmm. Well, to me, it was very much about her stage in life, you know, being mid-30s, like I said, having lost her identity and feeling like she was just a mother and a wife and not doing either very well. And so I just, I think you people can go through that stage in life in, in the 30s, sort of like, is this is this it? And then you look to your youth and you miss the excitement of youth. I think when you get to your 40s, you start thinking, well, actually, this is really nice, the stability, and you have a little bit more freedom if your kids are a little bit older. So the 40s, I feel like things get a little bit better. The 30s can be a rough a rough go for some. And so I just thought because of that, it would it would make sense that she would take an offer of escape. And I mean, Thomas was offering this escape to get to her. His motivation was different. Uh, but he he recognized what she was experiencing and going through and, and used that as a way to 
get her to, you know, go with him and and sort of reignite things between them. So he was calculated in that. Yeah, so she's kind of being manipulated, but also she still has feelings for him, right? So she's not going to play this game with someone she doesn't still have feelings for. So, So for our listeners, when you're setting up this kind of scenario, there wasn't a point at which in Jessica's novel, I was like, oh, this is implausible. This doesn't make any sense. And it's it's a very out there kind of shocking premise. And I was going, why am I finding all of this plausible? But she even goes back in time where they set up the rules for the game. These group of three friends set up rules for how their sort of non-platonic relationship is going to work as well, with one of them being very controlling. And we have Scarlett constantly telling Hannah, don't do this, don't do this. And of course, when someone is constantly telling you, don't do this, and they're waggling their finger in your face, you're much more likely to do this thing that you're being told not to do as well. So these were all things that Jessica really built up excellently around that central story to make it completely plausible so that at no point where we're going, oh, this, this doesn't feel right. You tweeted something the other day, Jessica, or shared it on Instagram, where somebody was complaining that they stopped reading the book because of the sex and because of the content, etc. That always makes me laugh because it's it's right there on the cover. Gripping racy. It's on the back. It says that it's racy, steamy, etc. A sexy, thrilling, addictive story. It all says it there on the back. And then someone picked this up and was pissed off about the sex. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. I I just found it amusing, really. And again, to me, if I pick up a book and there's something in it that I'm not enjoying that doesn't resonate with me, I just put the book down and I, I don't read on and I don't then go on to Goodreads and comment about that fact. So, I mean, but again, sex is one of those things that can be quite, they, it can offend people and they really shouldn't read this book. That's sort of how I feel. But yeah, I, I don't let it get to me. And And I felt like it I felt like it worked and I, my editor didn't have me take anything out at all. So that just validated, okay, well, she obviously thinks it works too. So, yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. You're not going to make all your readers happy. I'm sure there's tons of readers who picked it up because Mm -hmm. it was sexy and steamy and racy. And I think they loved it for all of those reasons. So it was just interesting because I chatted with Emma Donahue for another interview and she says she still gets people who send her emails in which they yell about the fact that she didn't use quotation marks in one of her books. And I just, it makes me laugh at the kind of things that'll make people write these kinds of reviews and reach out to authors and get all worked up about. But for our listeners, we've said before on the podcast, every time you use a curse word, and I know because I'm a huge potty mouth and my books are full of them, someone is going to post a snarky comment about these kinds of things and et cetera, et cetera. So when you're using sex in your novel, it needs to be there very intentionally. It needs to move the story along. It needs to reveal a lot about character and about motivations, as this book does, as opposed to just being gratuitous, because you're going to have these people who are going to get worked up. And, you know, it's kind of something that you need to be able to defend and say the sex needed to be there for the story, which is 100%, I believe, with your story, Jessica. Thank you. Yeah. I, I felt the same way. And and like I said, if people don't want to read about sex, then they just shouldn't read that book. That's It's just as simple as that. Amazing. All right. So we're at the end of our time together. For our listeners, we're linking to Don't You Dare on our bookshop.org affiliate page. And you can get it from there and support an independent bookstore and Jessica and the podcast at the same time. Can you tell us what you're working on now, Jessica? Or is that a bit of, is it too soon to be talking about it? It's pretty early on, but I, I'm writing a novel. I have started another novel and it involves parallel lives not like sliding doors. So it's much darker than that. And I don't even know yet if it's if it would be considered a thriller or maybe more of a literary horror novel. I'm not I'm not working to any formula or any sort of genre. I'm just which is new for me. I'm I'm just working at it with however the story takes me and and trying some new things. And so far I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. I love it. It's always the best when we get to experiment and really put ourselves out there, which becomes harder and harder with each book you publish. For our listeners, it's much easier before you publish to to take chances and really put yourself out there than than it becomes later on because your publisher wants to put you in one box and market you as a thriller author or a historical fiction author. So these things do become tricky. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.
news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.